This episode of California Dreamy is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast is not that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To really get your show to be everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy and reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content. The most accurate download stats so you know if you're reaching the audience that you're wanting to. And a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting, a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So if you already have a podcast or you've always dreamed about starting one, head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up and the first month is on us. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers or to help you get started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free, using promo code DREAM, you've got no more excuses. Let's get started with the show. I first want to acknowledge a couple of really incredible things that happened in our Facebook group this past week. One of my dreamers, Mishiro, and I hope I pronounced that correctly, shared a very candid and authentic, painful, upsetting, yet astoundingly powerful post about many of the difficult things that she's had to deal with in life. Especially heart-wrenching is the fact that much of it came from the people in our lives who are supposed to love us and be gentle on our feelings. She turned to us because she knew that amongst all of us in the Facebook group that we would listen and we would care and we would have compassion, and we did. I want to thank Mishiro for trusting us and opening up her heart and letting us all in to help in any small way that we could. I want to thank your husband for loving you the way that you needed to be loved. And I want to tell you how remarkable I think you are for getting through every single thing in life and still being the best mom you could possibly be for persisting and for never giving up. I think all of us were a little bit inspired by you. And I want to thank my dreamers who took the time to reach out to her, to let her know that you listened and that you're there. Catherine L., Jennifer S., Dave W., Lindsay G., Mar W, Carla H, Aaron H, Nikki T, Rebecca Jane, Vicki G, Jason P, Alexandria F, DDJ, Stephanie H, Catherine S, Katina I, Lindy B, Elizabeth C, Angela F, Bonnie Lee, Annie S, Kate W, Jennifer O, and Sue B. It means a lot to me that you all would take the time to listen and talk to someone you can see was clearly in need. So thank you for that. I also want to quickly say how grateful I am for the tremendously wonderful response we received from our episode on the murder of Blaze Bernstein. It never ceases to amaze me how you, my dreamers, my tribe, how much love and compassion you all have in your hearts. Some of you have already known his story, and for some of you, his story was new. Either way, thank you for taking it in, 
and for getting to know him along with me and for not being afraid to cry on your way to work. I cry more than I'd like to admit while I'm driving as well. We can't help it because we care and love is always going to win. And one more important thing about Blaze's story. It was brought to my attention on Twitter by J.E. Reich at J.E. Reich Writes that I misspoke regarding one very important aspect of the story. In regards to the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, I stated in the episode that the protesters were chanting, you will not replace us, when they were actually chanting, Jews will not replace us. And that definitely impacts the inflammatory nature of what those protesters were all about. I will never be one to diminish or to lessen the impact of hate spewed by these individuals, and I will stop short of repeating any of the language that is terribly offensive, but this was an oversight on my part, and it completely shifted the optics of the meaning behind the refrain. So thank you for pointing that out, and my apologies for that. And lastly... I want to thank everyone who's continued to support California Dreaming on Patreon. Very quickly, I just want to thank Anna W., DDS, Diana M., Jackie H., Kim C., and Laura M. Thank you all so much for enjoying and supporting the show. And before I get into the story, I need to provide you with this warning. This episode contains details of the deaths of some very young children, and it may be difficult and triggering for some listeners. It is not suitable for young ears, and it may not be suitable for anyone who may be sensitive to the subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Over the past 72 episodes of our show, with a spattering of bonuses and whatnot, we have discussed some pretty repugnant individuals. There are just some who stick out in our minds more than others when we think about them. Most recently, we had a short bonus on the case out of Colorado, the murder of Shanann, Bella, Celeste, and Nico Watts. I'm trying to think about the most disliked criminal defendants we've covered. My dreamers did not like Brock Turner very much. Oh, and you guys really didn't like Jill and Kent Easter from the PTA Mom episode. Elliot Roger, Robert Piernock, Melissa Huckabee, Susan Eubanks, Ariel Castro, Jeremy Strohmeyer. These stand out to me. While several of these didn't actually kill anyone, they did do some pretty janky stuff. And of the ones who did kill... Some of them killed children, and some of them killed their own children, or at least they attempted to. In Robert Piernock's case, he didn't succeed. I know we feel the murder of children is one of the most despicable crimes known to humankind, if not the most despicable of all. But there is certainly something to be said about a parent who murders their own children. We just talked about it a couple weeks ago in Colorado. It really dials up our rage. Nobody likes a child killer. Right now, the Watts family murders have been the topic of conversation, 
not only because it's a recent case that's garnered a great deal of media attention, not to mention that so much information has been dumped in the weeks since the killer's conviction, but because of the sheer brutality with which we know that those little girls died by the hands of their own father, and the details that have been revealed only ratchet up the anger and sadness that we feel. Every day is another reminder of what that bastard did, and it is a case that's going to stick with us for a long time, if not forever. Before I get into the case that is the topic of this episode, the one that's out of California, I wanted to briefly talk about three other cases that garnered national attention. Six children, four of whom died at the hands of their mothers, and two of whom survived the attempt. Three cases that were infuriating at the time that they happened, and I do believe that they continue to do so to this day. They do for me anyway, and I'm pretty sure that they do for many of you as well. I want to talk to you about Michael Daniel and Alexander Tyler Smith, Christy, Cheryl, and Stephen Downs, and Kaylee Anthony. Let's talk about Michael and Alexander first. Michael Daniel Smith was born October 10, 1991, in Spartanburg, South Carolina. He died on October 25, 1994, in Union, South Carolina. He was three years and 16 days old. That's 1,112 days. His younger brother, Alexander Tyler Smith, was born August 5, 1993, in Seneca, South Carolina. He also died alongside his brother on October 25, 1994. He was one year, two months, and 21 days old, and that is only 447 days. They are buried together in the same casket in Bogensville United Methodist Church Cemetery in Jonesville, South Carolina. Many of you know how they ended up there, but to be fair, I do want to give a little background and what led up to their deaths. Susan Smith was born September 26, 1971 in Union, South Carolina. Her parents were Linda and Harry Vaughn, and she was the youngest of three children with two older brothers. When Smith was seven, her parents' marriage fell apart, and they would eventually divorce. Shortly after the divorce, Smith's father would take his own life. He was 37 years old. The marriage had been quite tumultuous, as it were, so when Harry Vaughn committed suicide, it's been reported that it deeply affected Smith. She was only seven, and she became markedly distant, detached, and generally a sad little girl. Smith's mother did not wait long before she quickly tied the knot again to a man named Bev Russell. He was a very well-known, successful businessman in the community. It was literally only weeks after her divorce from Harry. Linda packed up her kids, moved them out of their modest home into Bev Russell's home, which was in quite the exclusive area of Union. By all accounts, Smith did well in school. She was popular with her peers as well as with teachers and staff. She was very social, popular, and outgoing. 
In 11th grade, Smith was elected as president of the Junior Civiton Club, whose focus was on volunteerism in the community. Smith was known to be sweet and well-liked, and she was actually given the Friendliest Female Award in her senior year, as her overall personality was always so pleasant and affable. Anyone who knew Smith in school, from what I've described her as being like, no one could have ever imagined the things that were going on at home behind closed doors. Those darned closed doors again, right, dreamers? Smith had secrets. Bev, her stepfather, was sexually abusing her. She told her mother what was going on, and I do believe that the abuse was reported to social services, and it is my understanding that Bev did leave the family home, but the move was temporary, and the only thing that really resulted was the family got some counseling, but Bev ultimately came back to the home. Smith's mother was actually quite perturbed by the fact that her daughter had brought down all this embarrassment upon the family, with not only making accusations, but making them public as well. Never mind the fact that her husband was abusing her daughter, right? That was not the priority to Susan's mother. Protecting their image, protecting her husband's reputation in the community, those were the things that she concerned herself with. With Bev continuing to live under the same roof as Smith, the sexual abuse would continue. During her last year in high school, Smith again reached out for help by way of speaking to her school counselor. Social services were alerted to the abuse, but once again, Smith backed down from pressing charges at the behest of her mother, and it was all quickly squashed. Bev sent in his attorneys, and they were able to effectively have all records sealed and the case neatly and quietly tucked away in order to spare the family any further embarrassment resulting from Smith's accusations. Smith began working at a store called the Winn-Dixie. So, other than this case, I had never heard of the Winn-Dixie. But apparently there are 495 of them. But they are all located in Florida, which is where the grocery retailer is headquartered, Alabama, Louisiana, Georgia, and Mississippi. So, it seems as though in South Carolina, the backdrop of this story doesn't have these stores anymore today. But at the time, that's where Smith had gotten her first job. It wasn't long before Smith was promoted from cashier into the accounting department as a bookkeeper. At this time, while still in her senior year in high school, she was involved in sexual relationships with three men. One was an older man, a co-worker at the Winn-Dixie, who was married, another co-worker who was younger, and still with her stepfather, Bev. During this time, while she was juggling these three so-called relationships, if you can really call them that, considering one of them was her own stepfather, Smith did become pregnant, and she would end up terminating the pregnancy. And then something would happen, which was likely one of the first times she had ever been confronted with this issue. The married co-worker decided that he was no longer interested in being involved with her. I'm not clear as to how much or how little she had experienced feelings of rejection prior to this, but she did not handle this well at all. In the wake of this man ending their involvement, Smith attempted to commit suicide by ingesting aspirin and Tylenol. 
While she was being treated, she told her doctors that she had previously attempted suicide in the same manner five years earlier when she was only 13. Then David Smith came into the picture. He was another co-worker at the Winn-Dixie, and they had also gone to high school together as well. As a matter of fact, David would break off an engagement with his fiancée in order to begin a relationship with Smith. And in short order, they found out they were pregnant. So on March 15, 1991, the couple got married and went to live with David's great-grandmother. You see, his parents were kind of going through a rough time themselves at that point. David's brother had recently passed away from Crohn's disease only 11 days before they got married. Within a month or two, David's mother and father simply couldn't deal with the death of their son. David's father attempted suicide and his mother all but abandoned the family entirely. So knowing all of this, it's not surprising that David and Smith were living with his great-grandparents. He had to be an extra generation removed from the drama, apparently. But when it did come to family drama, Smith herself was no stranger to this. Her family life was full of it. So this, all this with her new husband, it didn't really faze her. At the same time, they were both extremely needy emotionally. And I don't think it would be a stretch to assume that at the onset of their marriage, it was very intense. And they probably leaned on one another a great deal for support through all of this. And remember, Smith was pregnant. When Michael came along on October 10th, by all accounts, the couple were overjoyed with the addition to the family, and he was very much loved and adored by his young parents. But knowing what we know about their background leading up to Michael's birth, I don't think I need to tell you that things grew increasingly more stressful and strange between the new parents. On top of that, it's been reported that Smith was somewhat materialistic. And I've known people who've been through traumatic relationships who turn to shopping to cope. I'm very close to someone who does this, and it's very difficult to see. So calling Smith materialistic is one thing, but I'm thinking it's tied to other emotional things going on beneath the surface. She began asking her mother, Linda, for financial help, but David and his mother-in-law constantly butted heads and this led to resentment towards his wife over it. And this is kind of relatable, likely for many of us. And mother-in-law was always sticking her nose in their business, especially when it came to the new grandbaby. Within a year of getting married, the young couple decided to separate. For the next several months, their relationship went back and forth. Reconciliation, followed by separation again, and repeat. They seemed to want their marriage to work, but while they were apart, Smith began dating a previous boyfriend that she had from work, and I've heard that there was infidelity on both their parts. I don't know if they had an agreement about this while they were technically broken up or not. By the end of 1992, Smith found out she was pregnant with their second son. And this news seemed to bring some clarity for the couple in terms of their relationship, and they decided to give their marriage a serious second chance. They obtained a loan from Susan's mom to put a down payment on a home. The idea was if they had their own place, it would help ease the tensions in their relationship. 
But as Smith's pregnancy progressed, she became quite distant and unhappy about being pregnant. So things weren't looking good as baby number two was on his way. Because of the growing rift between David and his wife, he began to stray from the marriage. He would say out of desperation and loneliness, but I don't find these to be legitimate excuses. However, I do understand. He began seeing a co-worker of his. But when baby Alexander came along on August 5th, 1993, the couple set aside their differences and I presume their extramarital relations at least for the time being, and reunited. However, by the time Alexander was just three weeks old, David was already out of the house again, and they both decided that this would be for the last time. The marriage was over, and it seemed the breakup was the best move for the couple when it came to raising their kids. They seemed to be better at it apart. They seemed to enjoy co-parenting separately. Smith came to the conclusion that she could no longer work at the Winn-Dixie anymore with David, so she found a job as a bookkeeper at Conso Products. The company, which manufactured decorative cord and narrow trimmings and hand-assembled tasseled accessories and sewing supplies, is closed today. It was bought out in 1999 by a private investor. Eventually, Smith would work her way up to the position of the executive administrative assistant for the president and CEO of the company, J. Carey Finley. This position opened up new doors to be closely involved with the whole new set of very wealthy individuals. And this included the son of her boss, Tom Finley. At the time, he was one of the most eligible bachelors in town. By January of 1994, Smith and Tom were kind of casually seeing each other. But a few more months into the year, hers and David's relationship was back on. But that reconciliation only lasted a couple of months at best. And she finally told David that she wanted a divorce. By September of 1994, Smith was back to seeing Tom Finley, though I don't know if it was ever really completely off. She had envisioned a future with this man, but Tom was not on the same page as Smith. He would come to the realization that she was not the one that he could see himself with in a serious, committed, long-term relationship. And part of it stemmed from an incident which he witnessed Smith kissing a married man of a friend of hers in a hot tub at Tom's father's estate where he had been hosting a party. On October 17, 1993, a week before Michael and Alexander's deaths, Tom wrote a letter to Smith, a Dear John letter, so to speak. In it, I believe it was an effort to spare Smith any hurt feelings, but he pointed to the children as the primary reason he didn't see a future with her, though I would not be surprised if the truth was that he didn't care for her promiscuity. This is what his letter read. Dear Susan, I hope you don't mind, but I think clearer when I am typing, so this letter is being written on my computer. This is a difficult letter for me to write because I know how much you think of me, and I want you to know that I am flattered that you have such a high opinion of me. Susan, 
I value our friendship very much. You are one of the few people on this earth that I feel I can tell anything. You are intelligent, beautiful, sensitive, understanding, and possess many other wonderful qualities that I and many other men appreciate. You will, without a doubt, make some lucky man a great wife, but unfortunately, it won't be me. Even though you think we have much in common, we are vastly different. We have been raised in two totally different environments, and therefore think totally different. That's not to say that I was raised better than you, or vice versa. It just means we come from two different backgrounds. When I started dating Laura, I knew our backgrounds were going to be a problem. Right before I graduated from Auburn University in 1990, I broke up with the girl that I had been dating for over two years. I loved Allison very much, and we were very compatible. Unfortunately, we wanted different things out of life. She wanted to get married and have children before the age of 28, and I did not. This conflict spurred our breakup but we have remained friends through the years. After Allison, I was very hurt. I decided not to fall for anyone again until I was ready to make a long commitment. For my first two years in Union, I dated very little. In fact, I can count the number of dates I had on one hand. But then Laura came along. We met at Conso and I fell for her like a ton of bricks. Things were great at first and remained good for a long time, but I knew deep in my heart that she was not the one for me. People tell me that when you find the person that you will want to spend the rest of your life with, you will know it. Well, even though I fell in love with Laura, I had my doubts about a long and lasting commitment, but I never said anything and I eventually hurt her very, very deeply. I won't do that again. Susan, I could really fall for you. You have so many endearing qualities about you, and I think that you are a terrific person. But like I have told you before, there are some things about you that aren't suited for me, and yes, I am speaking about your children. I'm sure that your kids are good kids, but it really wouldn't matter how good they may be. The fact is, I just don't want children. These feelings may change one day, but I doubt it. With all of the crazy mixed up things that take place in this world today, I just don't have the desire to bring another life into it, and I don't want to be responsible for anyone else's children either. But I am very thankful that there are people like you who are not so selfish as I am and don't mind bearing the responsibility of children. If everyone thought the way I do, our species would eventually become extinct. But our differences go far beyond the children issues. We are just two totally different people, and eventually those differences would cause us to break up. Because I know myself so well, I am sure of this. But don't be discouraged. There is someone out there for you. In fact, it's probably someone that you may not know at this time, 
or that you may not know, but would never expect. Either way, before you settle down with anyone again, there is something you need to do. Susan, because you got pregnant and married at such an early age, you missed out on much of your youth. I mean, one minute you were a kid, and the next minute you were having kids. Because I come from a place where everyone had the desire and the money to go to college, having the responsibility of children at such a young age is beyond my comprehension. Anyhow, my advice to you is to wait and be very choosy about your next relationship. I can see this may be a bit difficult for you because you are a bit boy crazy, but as the proverb states, good things come to those who wait. I'm not saying you shouldn't go out and have a good time. In fact, I think you should do just that. Have a good time and capture some of that youth that you missed out on. But just don't get seriously involved with anyone until you have done the things in life that you want to do first. Then the rest will fall in place. Susan, I'm not mad at you about what happened this weekend. Actually, I'm very thankful. As I told you, I was starting to let my heart warm up to the idea of us going out as more than just friends. But seeing you kiss another man put things back into perspective. I remembered how I hurt Laura, and I won't let that happen again, and therefore I can't let myself get close to you. We will always be friends, but our relationship will never go beyond that of friendship. And as for your relationship with B. Brown, of course you have to make your own decisions in life, but remember, you have to live with the consequences also. Everyone is held accountable for their actions, and I would hate for people to perceive you as an irreputable person. If you want to catch a nice guy like me one day, you have to act like a nice girl, and you know, nice girls don't sleep with married men. Besides, I want you to feel good about yourself. And I am afraid that if you sleep with B. Brown, or any other married man for that matter, you will lose your self-respect. I know I did when we were messing around earlier this year. So please, think about your actions before you do anything you will regret. I care about you, but also care for Susan Brown, and I would hate to see anyone get hurt. Susan may say that she wouldn't care if her husband had an affair, but you and I know that is not true. Anyhow, as I have already told you, you are a very special person, and don't let anyone tell you or make you feel any different. I see so much potential in you, but only you can make it happen. Don't settle for mediocre in life. Go for it all, and only settle for the best. I do. I haven't told you this, but I am extremely proud of you for going to school. I am a firm believer in higher education, and once you obtain a degree from college, there is no stopping you. And don't let these idiot boys from Union make you feel like you are not capable or slow you down. After you graduate, you will be able to go anywhere you want in this world, and if you ever wanted to get a good job in Charlotte, my father is the right person to know. He and Coney know everyone who is anyone in the business world in Charlotte, 
and if I can ever help you with anything, don't hesitate to ask. Well, this letter must come to an end. It is 11.50pm, and I am getting very sleepy. But I wanted to write you this letter because you were the only one who was always making the effort for me, and I wanted to return the friendship. I've appreciated it when you have dropped me nice little notes or cards or the present at Christmas. And it is about time that I start putting a little effort into our friendship. Which reminds me, I thought long and hard about getting you something for your birthday, but I decided not to, because I wasn't sure what you might think. Now I am sorry I didn't get you anything, so you can expect something from me at Christmas. But do not buy me anything for Christmas. All I want from you is a nice, sweet card. I'll cherish that more than any store-bought present. Again, you will always have my friendship. And your friendship is one that I will always look upon with sincere affection. Tom P.S. It's late, so please don't count off for spelling or grammar. She was still intimately involved with her possibly soon-to-be ex-husband, David, and her stepfather, Bev. And it's even been suggested that she had an affair with Tom's father, her boss, the CEO of the company that they worked for. Smith's first course of action was to try to garner Tom's affections by way of sympathy. She told him about the years of sexual abuse that she had endured at the hands of her stepfather. But that didn't work to sway his feelings. She then purportedly told him about the alleged affair she'd been having with his dad to warn him that it was information that might come out during her divorce proceedings with her husband. As anyone could imagine, Tom did not take well to this news, and he echoed his sentiments of his letter, that they were done. If Smith had hoped that she and Tom would have another go at it, those hopes were all completely dashed for good. On the 25th of October, 1994, Smith was completely consumed with her breakup with Tom. As the day wore on, she became more and more distraught and eventually requested to be sent home early. Smith drove over to the daycare and picked up Michael and Alexander. She went to see a friend and they sat and talked in the parking lot. She explained how distressed and fearful over Tom's response to her revelation that she had sexual relations with his dad. Smith wanted another chance to talk to Tom, to try to work things out, to smooth things over. So her friend agreed to watch the children while she went back to work to talk to him, to tell him that the stories about her and his father were untrue. But he was not pleased to see her when she appeared in his office and he quickly escorted her out. Later that same night, Smith called a friend whom she knew had plans to have dinner with Tom along with some other people. She asked if Tom had spoken about her during dinner but the friend told her that he did not mention Smith. And this is when Smith put her plan into motion. At approximately 8 p.m., Smith put Michael and Alexander into their car seats. Neither one of them did she bother putting shoes on, and she began to drive around. During her confession, she would state that she wanted to die and had planned on going over to her mom's house, but changed her mind. And my dreamers, you all know what she did next. She went to that lake, John D. Long Lake, drove out to the ramp, 
exited the vehicle, shifted her car into drive, let out the emergency brake, and stood by while her car rolled into the lake with her children asleep inside the back seat. The car slowly drifted off into the lake. It slowly filled with water and it slowly sank. None of this was quick for Michael and Alexander. Thinking about the fear and confusion and pain that those little babies were made to endure broke our collective hearts as a nation. We reviled Smith for her actions. In particular, were the nine days that she stood before her community and all of us, proclaiming that it was a black man who had carjacked her and taken Michael and Alexander. But the story quickly unraveled, and under the pressure of constant questioning and interrogation, along with inconsistencies in her story, on November 3, 1994, Smith finally admitted what she had done. Police had searched the lake previously, but they underestimated the distance the car had drifted and did not find the vehicle the first time around. As a part of her confession, she told them how far the car drifted. Divers went back, and they found it. It had flipped upside down. Michael and Alexander were dangling lifeless in their seats. One of their tiny little hands visibly pressed against the window when the diver got close enough to see inside. And they were alive when their mother set them out into that lake. Tom's letter was also found in the car. Smith would go on to be tried for the murders of Michael and Alexander. She was facing the death penalty but the jury only needed a little more than two hours to return their verdict of guilty. She was spared the death penalty and was sentenced to 30 years to life in prison. She will be eligible for parole in 2025. Many of you have likely heard the next mom that I want to discuss, Diane Downs. She was born August 7, 1955 in Phoenix, Arizona, she was the oldest of four children. Her parents, Wes and Willadine Fredrickson, moved the family around to different towns until Wes got a stable job with the U.S. Postal Service when Downs was around 11 years old. She was raised in a pretty strict and conservative household with lots of rules, lots of things that she was forbidden to do. At some point later on in life, Downs would make the claim that when she was 11 years old, she was sexually abused by her father. She said these instances of abuse would occur when he would take her on long car rides to the desert and he would touch her inappropriately. She also claimed that during one of these times they were pulled over by the highway patrol and that officer spoke to her father privately and from that point forward, the sexual abuse had stopped. Her father would deny all of these allegations and later on she too would say that the accusations were false. As Downs got into her mid-teens, she began to feel like she wanted to fit in more with her peers, but this would mean that she would have to defy many of her parents' rules. Up until this point, she had always gone by her first name, which was Elizabeth, but sometime around the age of 14, she decided to start going by her middle name, Diane. She began sporting a new hairstyle, 
a shorter, trendier, bleach blonde look, and she started dressing a little more maturely. And by the time she was 16, she began seeing a boy the same age as herself who lived just across the street, a kid named Stephen Downs. Of course, her parents did not approve of this whatsoever, but she would not be stopped. And it wasn't long before the young couple's relationship turned sexual. When they graduated from high school, Stephen entered into the United States Navy and Diane Downs went to Pacific Coast Baptist Bible College. While they were apart, they promised to stay loyal to their relationship. But for Downs, she was unable to keep this promise. Within a year, she was expelled from college for promiscuity. But their relationship did survive this. I don't know if she necessarily told him or not, but when he was home on leave in November of 1973, the couple got married. But it was rife with difficulties from the start. They argued about financial issues as well as alleged infidelities on both of their parts. And this would often cause Downs to up and leave Stephen and head off to stay with her parents. But in 1974, the couple would have their first child, a girl they would name Christy. When Christy was six months old, Downs joined the Navy herself, but found herself back home after only three weeks into basic training because she had had some painful blisters. She would later claim that she left the Navy because Stephen wasn't taking proper care of their new infant, Christy. Having a baby did not make things any better, but it is my understanding that Downs enjoyed the whole process of being pregnant. So in 1975, the couple had a second baby, another girl that they named Cheryl Lynn. After Cheryl's birth, Stephen came to the conclusion that this was enough kids for him, so he underwent the procedure of having a vasectomy. But Diane wasn't done wanting to be pregnant. That did seem to be her focus, as you will come to find from her later actions, that she didn't really want to be a mom, but she would rather go through the steps of having a baby. She got pregnant for a third time, and I presume it wasn't Stephen's, but I've heard that vasectomies aren't foolproof. Downs decided to terminate this pregnancy, however, and she would name the baby Carrie. In 1978, the couple moved with their two children to Mesa, Arizona. They both found work at a mobile home manufacturing company. It would be at this job that Downs began having several sexual relationships with her male co-workers, and she would become pregnant again. In 1979, she gave birth to a boy who she would name Stephen Daniel or Danny Downs. Stephen decided to raise Danny as his own, despite the fact that he knew he wasn't the father. The marriage would only last one more year. The couple would divorce in 1980. Over the course of the next several years, Downs bounced from relationship to relationship moving in with one man, moving out, moving in with another. There were times when she was trying to work things out with Stephen as well. It's been described as running off and coming back. She even once left after accusing her boss of raping her. In order to help supplement her income, she attempted to become a surrogate parent. As I had said earlier, she enjoyed being pregnant. Having kids to keep, not so much. So, this seemed like the perfect thing for her. 
but she was unable to pass two different psychiatric examinations that she would have been required to pass in order to be eligible for surrogacy. As a matter of fact, one of those tests revealed that Diane was highly intelligent, but it also indicated that she was psychotic. She was deemed a neurotic and was referred for more tests. Several more exams and interviews later, the report stated, quote, Diane did not do well in areas where she had to demonstrate social cause and effect reasoning, attention span, and concept formation. These findings are consistent with, but not absolutely diagnostic, of a major psychopathology. A further report stated, quote, The couple's last child reportedly was the result of Ms. Downs picking five ugly younger men to seduce in order to have a child by one of them. Ms. Downs' conversation was effusive, immature, and frequently self-disparaging. This individual has poor ability to express anger in a modulated fashion and tends to have poor behavioral controls. Downs kind of brushed all of this aside, even thinking that this was funny, joking about those results with some of her friends even. So with the help of her dad, who had been with the post office for quite some time, Downs too got a job working for the postal service. The three children were quite often shuttled off to stay with either her parents, her ex-husband Stephen, or Danny's actual biological father. However, when the children were in her care, some of her neighbors expressed their concerns that they were being neglected. They could see that they were often shabbily dressed or dressed all wrong for the weather. They were known to knock on neighbors' doors asking for food because they were hungry. If there were ever times Diane was unable to find childcare, she would just still go to work, or wherever she went, and leave the eldest, Christy, in charge, who, by this time, was only six years old. In late 1981, Downs was actually accepted into a surrogate mother program. After carrying a child to full term, she was paid $10,000. This went so well for her that she attempted to open her own program for surrogate mothers, but that never really got off the ground. And it would also be around this time that Downs met and became involved with a co-worker named Robert Knickerbocker. We are going to call him Nick for short. And he was apparently what Downs had been searching for for her entire life. She became consumed, pretty much obsessed with Nick. However, he was married. She wanted him to leave his wife and be with her, and pressured him hard. He really had no interest in ending his marriage. I mean, he is said to have still loved and cared for his wife. So, he really didn't want to carry on with Downs into a serious relationship, so he effectively ended it. Devastated over Nick having ended things, Downs moved back to Oregon but she never really fully let go of the possibility of getting back with Nick. At one point, in an attempt to cause Nick's marriage to fall apart, Downs accused him of giving her a sexually transmitted disease. He explained to her that the only two people that he has been with is her and his wife, so to him, she was clearly the reason for the disease, having known Downs to be particularly promiscuous. Nick did have to break down and tell his wife about the affair, but they decided to work through their problems, getting counseling, and treatment for the STD. 
Downs continued to pursue him, writing him letters, paying him visits. But finally, in April of 1983, Nick made it clear that he was finished with her and there was no chance that they would be together, telling her it was completely over and he had zero interest in being a daddy to her kids. And one month later, Downs put her plan into motion. On May 19, 1983, at approximately 10 p.m. in the evening, Downs, who had been driving her children around in her car, suddenly pulled over and shot all three of them multiple times at point-blank range. She then shot herself in the arm, then placed a neatly folded towel or cloth that she had brought with her for the occasion. Heaven forbid she bleed to death right along with her children, right? She then slowly drove towards an emergency room in Springfield, where the staff discovered the three children in the back seat covered in blood. Cheryl, who was seven, was dead on arrival, but the other two, eight-year-old Christy and three-year-old Danny, were taken into the hospital, both of them near death. When questioned by investigators, Downs explained that a man had flagged her down on the side of a dirt road and that her three kids were asleep in the back seat. She claimed that the man attempted to carjack her, so she took the keys and pretended to throw them, and then a struggle ensued with the stranger, whom she described as being a shaggy-haired man. When she did that, he shot her three children in the car. Downs attempted to struggle with the man, and she herself received the gunshot wound to the arm. The man fled, and she quickly made her way to the ER. None of this made sense to police. Why would she pull over on a dark road for a strange man? Why would she pretend to throw her keys like that was going to help the situation? Why would this man shoot her children? None of this added up. And then Downs began speaking to the media. And her stories became more and more bizarre. She was giving all kinds of weird, unnecessary details that also didn't make any kinds of sense. Like, she told the media she was taking the kids sightseeing. Sightseeing. In the dark. Late at night. In the middle of nowhere. While they were sleeping. Just more red flags for investigators. So they started taking a closer look at her. One of the first things that got investigators' attention, aside from all of the other weird stuff, was the way that she reacted when they spoke to her about the condition of her two surviving children. They felt like her responses to what they were saying was really inappropriate and bizarre. She was very surprised that Danny was hit in his spine rather than his heart. She talked to investigators like all of this was a normal, everyday conversation. And not only that, she was way overly concerned about contacting Nick, as opposed to the children's fathers. She wasn't even asking about Christy and Danny's condition. She never asked if they were going to make it. She talked way too much and way too casually for someone having gone through something so traumatic. The forensics also painted a different picture as to the events of that night, and that too contradicted Downs' story. The blood splatter in the car didn't line up with what she said happened that night and gunpowder residue was found in places where it should not have been found. 
She said the man shot her children from outside the vehicle, but it was evident that they were shot from point-blank range. And her wound was rather superficial compared to those of her kids. And she had that towel prepared to help stop the bleeding when she was shot. Also, when Downs was questioned about the weapons that she owned, she did not disclose that she owned a 22 caliber handgun, which was what was used in the shooting. Both her ex-husband Stephen and her love interest Nick reported independently of one another that she did own a 22 caliber handgun. Amongst the things that investigators found was Downs' diary. Page after page after page, she obsessed over Nick. But she also wrote incessantly about his desires to not have any children. They also found a unicorn that Downs had purchased in the days leading up to the shootings. She had each of her children's names inscribed on the front of it. Now this doesn't really mean a whole lot to me, to tell you the truth. But for what it's worth, Downs was known to have made the off-the-cuff remark that she wished she had never bought it. I'm not sure what exactly that was supposed to have meant, but it does seem like she was preparing to have something in memory of her children, knowing that in a few days they'd be dead. Then she could use this narrative to garner sympathy for herself. Because from what I understand, there wasn't anything else about her home that indicated that it was a place bustling with young children. No toys, nothing to show that children were an integral part of the home. I do believe the unicorn, if anything, would have been used as a prop in Downs's woe was me narrative. Also, remember when I said Downs was driving slowly to the hospital? We know this because a man came forward with information that he remembered passing her on the road that night, and it stood out to him because she was driving so slowly. She had told investigators that she raced to the ER, so this too contradicted her story. And of course, we can assume that she drove slowly in order to allow time for her children to bleed out and die. It would eventually be surviving daughter Christy who would provide the most damning and heart-wrenching evidence against her mother. As a result of being shot, she had suffered a stroke and was incapable of speaking. While she was in this state, when Downs would visit her, detectives noted that Christy would become visibly shaken and fearful of her presence, and her monitors would indicate that her heart rate and blood pressure were rising dramatically. Eventually, Christy was able to articulate the truth about what happened that night. There never was a shaggy-haired man. It was her mother that shot them all. She would later be able to provide a very important detail that confirmed another aspect of Downs' story being a lie. Christy said that when they were shot, the radio was on. But Downs said she tossed the keys and it would not have been possible for music to be playing in the car without the keys. This means the likely scenario is that Downs pulled over, left the car on, was allegedly listening to Duran Duran's Hungry Like the Wolf when she reached back with her gun, took aim, and shot Cheryl, Christy, and Danny. Once Christy was able to positively identify her mother as the shooter, Downs was finally arrested 
in February of 1984. I don't know at what point this happened, but Downs managed to seduce a man along her postal route and became pregnant again. It's been said that this was an attempt to garner sympathy from the jury, but it didn't work. Her trial began in May of that year, and prosecutors laid out all the evidence they had against her. They had their star witness, Christy, and bless her little heart, after months of physical therapy and counseling, she was able to take the stand and testify to the jury that her mother shot her, her sister, and her brother. Downs was found guilty and sentenced to life plus 50 years with the possibility of parole. She gave birth in between the verdict and the sentencing, and the baby girl was adopted out and named Becky. I have seen an interview with her, and she has not had an easy life being the offspring of Diane Downs. But that is a whole other story. Downs did make a successful escape from where she was being held in Oregon. She was found two weeks later in the home of a husband of a fellow inmate of hers. She was subsequently moved to a higher security prison in California, but I did do a couple of inmate searches and I can't seem to find where she is now. Her first chance at parole was in 2008 and she continued to stick to her story that it was a stranger that attacked her and her children. And it was this failure on her part to quote, demonstrate any honest insight into her criminal behavior. Even after her convictions, she continues to fabricate new versions of events under which the crimes occurred. After three hours of questioning and 30 minutes of deliberation, the board denied her parole. She was denied parole a second time two years later, and this would have gone on for the rest of her life if not for a new law enacted that does not allow her to be up for parole for another 10 years. So she will be eligible again in 2020 when she's 65 years old. Kaylee Marie Anthony was born August 9, 2005. Sometime in 2008, she died. The who, what, where, when, and how as to her death is a complete mystery, even to this day, more than 10 years after the toddler was last seen alive by her grandparents. They would be the only people to really have an exact day that they actually laid eyes on her last. The burning questions linger. The questions that I would love to hear Kaylee's mom actually speak the truth to. What happened to your daughter? When did you last see her? Where were you when she died? Were you the one who hid her body? Casey Anthony was and is such an accomplished liar that I've accepted long ago that the world will never know. And now her story is simply, I don't know. You know the story of what happened. We've likely heard that faithful 911 call many times over. The call that Kaylee's grandmother, Cindy, made on July 15, 2008. The exasperated call explaining that she had not seen her granddaughter for 31 days explaining that her daughter had ran the gamut of excuses as to why Kaylee wasn't around, that she was at the babysitters, that she was at the nannies, that mom was busy working, 
They heard everything. My parents were closely involved with my daughter from the time that she was born and beyond. When my daughter was Kaylee's age, I was a single mom too. I worked full time. My daughter was in daycare, but she also spent a lot of time with my parents as well. So if my mom and dad went a month without seeing my kid, they'd be freaking out. And it's totally understandable. Kaylee's mom, having run out of options and excuses, finally spun the story to grandma that Kaylee was kidnapped by the nanny, Zanny the nanny to be exact. And this prompted Cindy to make the 911 call. She then put her daughter on the phone and she quite casually explained to the operator that her two, almost three-year-old, had been missing for 31 days and she was going through other channels and resources, supposedly, to look for her. Over the next couple of months, investigators looked deeply into Kaylee's disappearance. Right away, they found many discrepancies in Mom's story. She reported Kaylee had been kidnapped by the nanny, but they soon figured out that no nanny ever existed. Casey Anthony has never been made to explain this lie. She told investigators that she worked at Universal Studios, a lie that she had been telling her parents for a very long time. So the day after the 911 call, she took investigators to Universal Studios. She wandered them around for a little bit, and then finally she just admitted, I don't really work here. Okay, so they had had enough of her nonsense and placed her under arrest for several charges, including giving false statements to law enforcement, child neglect, and obstruction of a criminal investigation. A week later, her bond was set at $500,000, which was posted by the nephew of California bondsman Leonard Padilla. They were hoping that she would cooperate with the investigation and lead authorities to Kaylee, but that would never happen. Honestly, if this woman was going to walk law enforcement all around Universal Studios on a wild goose chase for an office and a job that does not exist, did anyone really think that she was going to lead them to Kaylee's body? Who are they kidding, right? Anyway, meter reader Roy Cronk called police over a period of three days, several times on August 11th, 12th, and 13th to report a suspicious object in a thick brush area near the Anthony family home. His first call was ignored. The next call was responded to by two officers and Kronk told them that he thought he saw a gray bag with what appeared to be a skull. The officers did an apparent cursory search and found nothing. In the meantime, Casey was given an offer of partial immunity on July 29, 2008, related to the false statement charges. And the offer was renewed on August 25th, but it expired on the 28th. It was a chance for her to admit what happened to Kaylee and possibly face lesser charges. And she did not take the deal. On September 5th, she was released again on bail, but a little more than a month later, without knowing the location of Kaylee yet, on October 14, 2008, a grand jury indicted Casey Anthony on first-degree murder, aggravated child abuse, aggravated manslaughter of a child, and four counts of providing false information to police, and she was rearrested and held without bail. Casey 
On October 28th, Casey Anthony pleaded not guilty on all counts. All the while, Kaylee's grandparents had launched a sustained and intense search for their granddaughter. I believe they were still going on the hopes that she was kidnapped. I don't know if they believe their daughter or if they wanted to believe her, but they certainly put up an impassioned effort to find her. They were desperate, and to me, it did not appear that they had any idea what the truth was or what happened to their grandbaby. On December 11th, meter reader Kronk called the sheriff's department again about that suspicious item he had seen. Investigators came out again, and the search this time did indeed turn up the remains of Kaylee Anthony. She was in a trash bag. The area was scoured for the next four days as bones were scattered in the wooded area near where the remains were first discovered. On December 19, 2008, based on the fact that duct tape was attached to the skull, the medical examiner, Dr. G, ruled Kaylee's death a homicide. As she put it, there is no reason in the world for duct tape to be on the face of a two-year-old, ever. And the cause of death was found to be undetermined. Four months later, on April 13, 2009, Prosecutors announced that they would be seeking the death penalty in their case against Casey Anthony. I am not going to get into the minutiae of the case and the trial, which began in May of 2011. That's a story that needs to be told all on its own. But you know that following a month and a half long trial on July 5, 2011, Casey Anthony was acquitted on all three counts related to the first degree murder charge acquitted of the aggravated manslaughter of a child, and acquitted of aggravated child abuse. They did find her guilty on the four counts of providing false information to law enforcement, which was her saying that she was employed at Universal Studios, that she left Kaylee at an apartment complex with a babysitter, that she told two employees at Universal Studios that Kaylee was missing, and that she had received a phone call and spoke to Kaylee. She was sentenced to one year in county jail and $1,000 fines for each of the four counts that she was convicted on. She was given 1,043 days credit for time served, plus additional credit for good behavior, and Casey Anthony was released from jail 12 days later. Two months later, she was ordered to pay $217,000 to the state of Florida for the costs her lies caused which included the cost of searching for Kaylee. On January 22, 2011, Kaylee's grandpa, George Anthony, attempted suicide in a Daytona Beach motel. George, who was 57 years old at the time, had been sending text messages to his family hinting that he was going to harm himself, stating that he wanted to be with Kaylee. Tracking his phone pings, they were able to trace him to the motel. When officers knocked on the door, they found him with two empty pill bottles and a rambling letter that he had written. He was brought to the hospital and treated. It has been theorized that George did not take these pills, but his attorney said that he did, that they were sleeping pills and his blood pressure meds and some alcohol. What was happening was, as his daughter's trial was approaching, 
More and more information from family and friends of the Anthony's as to just how seriously dysfunctional the family had been was coming to light and that it had been going on for years. Dynamics which included constant fighting between George and his wife Cindy, who was 50 years old at the time. But all indications were that both George and Cindy were devoted grandparents. They adored Kaylee, but Cindy and Casey had a very intense and long-standing rivalry. A source close to the family spoke to People magazine back in 2011 and said in an interview, quote, George and Cindy were always at each other's throats, and Cindy would tell Casey that she was immature, and Casey would tell Cindy that she was ruining her life. They could not communicate at all if it weren't for their fighting and bickering. Cindy and George did separate for about six months in 2005, though they did get back together, but there was still a great deal of tension in their marriage. The same source said, quote, I've watched Cindy berate George over the littlest things, just nasty, mean stuff. She'll say, George, you're so stupid, right in front of his friends. There was a time when Cindy wanted a divorce. It's been reported that there was infidelity on his part, but out of fear of losing the house and her assets and divorce, Cindy reconsidered. She was the main breadwinner in the family, and George had numerous financial indiscretions and failed investments. A major problem to those who knew the couple would say that their personalities were very different. Cindy, being a nurse, has been described as domineering and heavy-handed and overbearing. She had complete control over the home. And like I said, she earned the money and George had to comply with her at all times. George had been a police officer at one point in his life, but his work history is kind of spotty. He left the police force in order to pursue a business venture with his father, as well as on his own, but none of that worked out well for George, who himself had a troubled relationship with his own father. He would admit to authorities that during this time that he was in between jobs, he fell for an internet money scam, one of those emails with the millions of dollars in a foreign bank. He did that, and he didn't tell Cindy about it. He lost $30,000 and told her he lost it gambling. And at the time that he was being interviewed by police regarding Kaylee's disappearance, he still hadn't told his wife. So I'm guessing she knows now. And it's this pattern of lying and deceit going on in the family that we see. Lying that doesn't even involve Casey Anthony. Lying was a thing that this family deferred to in order to protect themselves. So if we were ever wondering where Casey Anthony got this, well, there you go. She had parents setting some pretty good examples for her. And when it came to their daughter, the couple would lie to the family about her. Like when she failed to graduate from high school on time, they lied to everyone about that. And when she became pregnant with Kaylee, they lied to everyone about that too. In the face of a very obvious baby bump, they would lie. At Cindy's brother's wedding, they all showed up in June of 2005, two months before Kaylee was born, and he could tell very clearly that his niece was pregnant. He asked Cindy and George about it, and they lied. She wasn't pregnant, they said. She's just putting on weight. He asked his sister again about it, and Cindy was just like, no, she's not pregnant. 
assuring her brother that Casey is not having sex. Her brother didn't know what to think. He was like, okay, if this isn't a pregnancy, then this must be some kind of massive tumor and Casey is probably going to die really soon because that thing is huge. And she gave birth to Kaylee two months later. And to this day, who Kaylee's father is, is anybody's guess. Casey had a bevy of stories about that as well. Kaylee coming into this world was certainly a blessing for George and Cindy. They doted over their new grandbaby, and it is abundantly clear from all that we've seen in the media that they love that little girl. But no amount of grandparental devotion would mend the ties that are supposed to bind a family. The opposite sort of happened, actually. Tensions became worse in the home, and the problems that had been brewing over the years between mother and daughter only intensified. And it started from day one when Kaylee was born. Cindy held her before Casey did. She was the first, and it was a constant issue between the two of them. Casey's former fiancé, Jesse Grund, has even reported that Cindy would refer to herself as mommy while speaking to Kaylee, doing so right in front of Casey in order to aggravate her. He reported that Cindy would openly berate Casey in front of him. Sometimes, seemingly out of the blue, Cindy would just start going off on her, calling her a loser and all sorts of terrible things in his presence, and then she would turn to Jesse and question him as to how in the world he could be with her. And when Kaylee went missing, information regarding emails between Cindy and her brother clearly indicated that he strongly felt Cindy was in serious denial about what was going on with Casey's involvement in Kaylee's disappearance. He came to the conclusion very quickly that his niece had a hand in her disappearance. And not only that, he was convinced that Casey killed Kaylee. And he could not comprehend how Cindy could be so blind or oblivious or unwilling to see the truth. With emails uncovered where he said, quote, No parent would be at the nightclub every Friday night after their daughter was kidnapped. She has no remorse and she doesn't care about anybody but herself. You are so far out in left field with this, you have lost touch with reality. There are so many more things that could be said about the Anthony family dynamic. Things that could very well have had a very damaging and lasting effect on Casey. In some ways, knowing what we know about them, it could very well explain Casey's detachment from the events surrounding the death of her daughter and what happened in the ensuing 31 days. I don't want to defend her actions, but I very much can relate to emotionally and mentally crumbling under the weight of an overbearing mother who constantly berates and harangues you. It's crazy making. But I'll come back to this after the last case that I want to talk to my dreamers about. It's a story from right here in California. I want to tell you about Emma Lee Barker. She was born September 2nd, 2007, and she died on March 18th, 2009. She was one year, six months, and 17 days old. That's 564 days that she lived. She was born to parents Stacy Barker and Anthony 
Hannonford. Anthony lived in Long Beach, California, while Stacy resided in Lancaster with her parents and younger brother, and this was more than 90 miles apart. Barker never did take Emma down to Long Beach to visit her dad, though he and his mother would occasionally make the drive up to visit her. Dad would eventually lose touch with Barker by the end of 2008, having no contact with his daughter after that time. After Emma was born, Barker took a three-month leave from work. She stayed home and took relatively good care of the newborn and did not go out at all socially. According to Barker's mother, Susan, she felt as though her daughter was doing a fine job with the baby, and during this time, she never saw her act or behave abusive towards Emma at all. Barker's younger brother, Nicholas, would echo the same sentiments. He never saw his sister lose her temper with the baby. She never struck Emma or scolded her verbally. On the surface, things look like your average single mom situation, kind of similar to Casey Anthony. She's living at home with her mom, her dad, and her brother. They all pitch in to help take care of Emma so she doesn't have to go to daycare, which of course saves mom a lot of money. During the day, Grandma, Susan Barker, would provide care for Emma while Stacy Barker went to work. As a matter of fact, Grandma changed her entire work schedule so that she would be available during the day to babysit. And when Barker would come home from her job, she would take over the duties and Grandma would go to work. I mean, by the time I had my kid, my parents were retired, but seriously, I doubt that they would have shifted their entire workday in this manner. I don't even think they'd have the ability to do so, really. It was such a huge sacrifice to make. And according to all who knew Barker, she seemingly embraced her new role as mother to Emma. Her parents said things went very well from the beginning, and she was a good mother, attentive, loving. Her co-workers concurred. Everyone had glowing things to say about her as a mom. And sometimes, for some... Being a mom is something new and different, and the idea of becoming a mother is often romanticized in their minds. I'm not saying that all expectant mothers feel this way. For me, I had a lot of anxiety and fear of not knowing what I was doing, and this overshadowed anything blissful that I may have thought motherhood was going to be like. But yeah, for Barker, the beginning seemed great, but all of that began to start to fade. She began missing out on the things that you just can't do when you become a mother anymore, especially a single mom, since you might likely be interested in getting back into the dating scene. She started to want to go out, and she started to want to begin dating. She wanted to have fun. And the plan, which is not uncommon, is to push the baby off onto the grandparents to provide the free babysitting while you're out living it up. And how receptive your parents are to this all depends on the nature of your relationship with them. They might be okay with a date night once in a while, but some grandparents might not really want to be part of that. If Barker had been irresponsible or if she was taking advantage of their free childcare, then likely they didn't. And that seemed the way things started to go. Those who have been single moms and dads may understand the desire to want to balance raising your child and your social life. It's not easy, especially if the other parent is not in the picture. 
then you never have those weekends off while the kids are off with their other parent, right? And it's my understanding with Barker, Emma's father was living far away, so she relied heavily on her mother to take care of Emma. As it would turn out, the veneer of Barker as the perfect mom seemingly evaporated. I don't know if it was a gradual shift in her personality or if the novelty of having a baby suddenly wore off, but who she truly was and who she wanted to be began to emerge. She was described as very narcissistic, self-absorbed and self-centered. Eventually, she all but left full responsibility of Emma onto her parents so that she could have her freedom to indulge in her own social activities. At home, Barker became increasingly neglectful, so wrapped up in what she was doing, being on the phone or on the computer, acting as though the infant wasn't even around, leaving her to play on her own, just doing stuff that you're not supposed to do with a new baby. Her mother would find Emma sitting in the living room alone while Barker was off in her room doing whatever it was she was doing. And they fought constantly, Grandma insisting that she needed to pay more attention to her daughter, that she just can't leave her unattended and unsupervised in the manner in which she did. Grandma was growing increasingly disconcerted and agitated over her daughter's behavior and treatment of Emma. What it would all boil down to is Barker simply did not want to be made to be responsible for Emma. She wanted everyone around her to bend over backwards to make sure she got the things that she wanted, to make sure she was able to live the life that she desired. She had this overblown sense of entitlement that the world needed to evolve around her, and this just is not going to fly with her mother. And things grew progressively worse. Barker was staying out all hours of the night, completely thumbing her nose at her responsibilities as a parent, dumping it all onto Grandma. And Grandma began confronting her daughter about her behavior. When she realized that her daughter was getting up in the morning and going to work still drunk from the night before, she implored her to stop with this, that this wasn't healthy, not for her, not for the baby. But Barker blew her mom off, refusing to even consider making any kind of effort to change or compromise. And more and more, Grandma started picking up all the slack when it came to taking care of Emma, as Barker had all but checked out. And just as Grandma was reaching her breaking point, Barker met a new love interest on New Year's Eve of 2008, a man named Brendan Borelli. He was 23 years old at the time. He was seemingly a responsible guy, holding down two jobs, and he very much enjoyed being on the dating scene and he enjoyed dating Barker. They talked all the time on the phone. They'd exchange at least 75 text messages a day, and they would engage in intimate relations at his apartment, and they took their lunch breaks together just about every day of the work week. And for Barker, when she was with a man, he became her top priority, doing anything and everything that she could to please him, further neglecting her responsibilities at home. And this new man, she was head over heels for. And it seemed as though she was willing to do anything for him. She didn't even reveal to him at first that she even had a baby. Apparently, he asked about it when her home screen lit up on her phone and Emma's picture appeared. Brendan asked, who was that? And she had to fess up that that was her daughter. Brendan was somewhat taken aback by the news and he explained that 
He was not really all that great with or interested in children. And Barker insisted that things didn't need to change. He doesn't have to have anything to do with Emma. And now that the cat was out of the bag, she was going to double down on her efforts to make sure Emma was of no concern to him. Which probably wasn't that much of a stretch, seeing as Emma wasn't that much of a concern to her either. But she was going to make sure Emma wasn't an issue. And she would make sure Emma would never become one. Barker was falling in love pretty hard for this new boyfriend of hers. But it seemed as though once she revealed Emma's existence, he kind of sort of started backing off. Her feelings were not being reciprocated as they had been in the beginning. He was just the kind of guy who liked things the way he had them. He wasn't looking to get tied down. He wasn't looking to settle into the role of a family man. He was not ready emotionally or financially to take on the role of a parent. And being with Barker any longer would require that. I mean, good on him for recognizing that and wanting to do the right thing. Not every individual who is dating a single mom or a single dad, knowing that they are not interested in the package deal, are willing to set aside their feelings for the sake of the child. He did interact with Emma on a few occasions, though if he did come over to Barker's house, he usually arrived after she went to bed. He had even confided in Barker's brother, Nicholas, that he did not want to spend too much time with Emma or be made to take on any responsibility for her. Brendan enjoyed his single life way too much to take his relationship with Barker to the next level. He made the conscious effort to not get too close to Emma through his relationship with her mother. He knew himself well enough to know that this was not in his plan at this point in his life, and he did not want Emma forming an attachment to him only to have him walk away and have to break that bond. Barker is beginning to realize that something is going to have to change in order for her to be able to move forward with this man who she has fallen in love with. And in her eyes, the only thing standing in the way of that is Emma. On March 17, 2009, Barker and Brendan spent the entire night of St. Patrick's Day drinking at a local bar. The couple went for a short drive and they ended up back at his apartment and had sex. Barker would not arrive home until 4 in the morning on March 18, 2009, and this was only two hours before she was scheduled to begin her shift at work. She did get cleaned up and she did get dressed, but she was confronted by her mother about coming home at that hour and that she still appeared to be drunk. They argued and eventually Barker left the house her mother thinking that she was headed to work. But at 5.30 a.m., she called in sick instead and headed to Brendan's apartment. The couple slept until around noon. They got up and went out for lunch. And it was over this lunch date that the couple discussed the potential for their future together. Barker asked him about the possibility of him wanting to get to know Emma a little bit more, even though he seemed to have made it clear that he wasn't ready to do the dad thing. Barker told him that Emma's dad, Anthony, was completely out of Emma's life. Whether that was by his choice or her doing, I'm not clear on, but from his testimony, it seems like something that Barker was doing purposely. She also told Brendan that she was not getting along very well with her mother. It was at this point that he doubled down on what he had said before. He wasn't ready for this and he wanted to wait a while before he decided whether or not he wanted to have any kind of relationship with Emma. 
He told her he wasn't ready, and he did not think that he could handle something as big as this. She wanted more from him, but he insisted he simply wasn't available for it. Barker began to feel as though this relationship was slipping away, and she knew when she left, she was going to have to do something to fix this. She was not going to lose Brendan. When Barker finally came home, her mother was so upset that she had caused her to be late for work again. She told her to either stop going out or to find someone else to take care of Emma, that she was done. A huge argument ensued with Barker yelling at her mother that she can't make anyone happy, she can't make her happy, she can't make work happy, she can't make her boyfriend happy. Grandma finally left to go to work at 3.30 that afternoon. Angry frustrated and desperate Barker finally decided that she was done with this she grabbed Emma and told her brother that she was going to take her to the park she stormed out of the house baby in tow at approximately 4.30 that afternoon she sent Brendan a text message telling him that she got into a fight with her mom and that she was taking Emma to Lancaster Park at 5.21pm she sent him another text to tell him that they were at the park and they were fine Brendan sent Barker a number of text messages before he was off work, but he did not receive any response until approximately 10.30 p.m. that evening. She called Brendan, screaming and hysterical on the line, saying they took her. She told him that she was at the Palmdale Park and Ride. Brendan picked up Nicholas, and the two of them drove over there. Nicholas called 911 on the way. Brendan and Nicholas found Barker sitting in her car, wearing only her underwear, hysterically crying. The sheriff arrived shortly afterwards, followed by the paramedics, then Barker's parents. She reported to deputies that she put Emma in her car seat around 5.30 p.m. after they played at Lancaster Park. She opened her driver's side door, and that was the last thing that she remembered until she woke up at 10.30 p.m. at the park and ride. She found her phone, looked at the time, and then looked at the back seat for Emma and discovered that she was missing. What stood out to the deputy was it wasn't until about three minutes into her story before she would say that her daughter was actually missing. She gave all the lead up before she brought up that most important fact. Barker had a small bump on her head and some scratches on her face. She was taken to a local hospital and a deputy stayed with her for the entire night. There was no point in time that Barker inquired as to whether or not her daughter had been found. Not once. At three in the morning, Barker was given a sexual assault examination by a forensic nurse. She did observe some recent scratches made to her outer labia and anus, but was unable to determine how those injuries were sustained. She was discharged from the hospital later that morning and brought to the Palmdale Sheriff's Station to be interviewed where she gave the same story. Investigators quickly looked to Barker's cell phone records. They were able to trace her movements on the afternoon and evening of March 18th based on cell towers that she was pinging and her story wasn't adding up. She was claiming that she was attacked, knocked unconscious from 5.30 to 10.30, but she was using her phone during those times. And by 9.50 p.m., she was very close, within a mile, of where investigators would eventually find Emma, and I will get to that. But her story that she was attacked, assaulted, raped, 
and that Emma was kidnapped was quickly falling apart. When investigators began pressing Barker for the truth, that they did not believe her story, she came up with another version of events. She told detectives that Emma died accidentally, that she panicked, and decided to dump Emma's body in Silmar, and made up the entire carjacking-slash-rape-slash-kidnapping story. She said that she was going to drive to Long Beach to ask Emma's dad for help, and on the way there, she gave Emma her purse to play with, but forgot that there was a plastic sandwich bag in it. Emma grabbed the bag and put it into her mouth and accidentally choked on it, and she had not realized it for some time. Eventually, she looked back at Emma since she had been quiet for quite some time, and that's when she realized Emma was no longer breathing. She said she came up with the story of the rape and kidnapping because she did not want people to think that she was a bad mom. When she was asked if she stopped and tried to check on Emma's breathing, she said that she did not stop because she was sure Emma was dead and that she was slumped over and that the bag was in her mouth. When she did stop, she took the bag out of her mouth and threw it out the window. She stated that Emma's eyes were closed, her lips were purple, and there was blood coming from her nose. This was probably one of the very few things that came out of Barker's mouth that was true. She told investigators that she did not call paramedics because she was afraid. Investigators told her that they were calling BS. They did not believe any of the story. Barker then stated that she didn't know Emma was playing with a plastic bag. And while she was driving on the freeway, she was playing peekaboo by tossing a blanket over Emma's head. So she theorized that maybe the blanket got caught on the safety clip of the car seat and pushed the baggie into Emma's mouth. She next said that she had played with the bag by holding it up to Emma's face while playing peekaboo with the blanket. And Emma grabbed her arm and she held the blanket for a couple of minutes and then kind of let go. After a few minutes, she removed the blanket and saw a little more than half the bag in her mouth. Investigators asked Barker if it seemed like Emma was struggling, and she said that she thought so, but she thought that was why Emma was grabbing her arm. She thought Emma was playing with her, but maybe she was trying to breathe. And that's when Barker said, I think I suffocated her. And that's another thing that I think was partially true about her statement that Emma grabbed her mother's arm, doing so to try to fight against her while her mom was suffocating her, and that she used the blanket to put over Emma's face while doing so, so she didn't have to look at her while she was dying. Investigators also did not believe that this was taking place while the car was in motion, however, but that's the way it needed to be in order for this to have been some sort of freak accident. An investigator who was the same height and size as Barker attempted to recreate this peekaboo game and it was determined that she would have been unable to reach Emma's face from the front seat while driving on the freeway. Reaching that far back, she had to lift herself out of the seat and she was unable to reach the steering wheel or the gas pedals. Once she was done admitting that she made up the whole entire story to cover up Emma's supposed accidental death, Barker would lead detectives to Emma's body the following day. At some point after leaving home, Barker had given Emma adult Benadryl in an attempt to cause an overdose, but it did not work. 
This overdose did not kill Emma. So Barker placed her hands over Emma's mouth and nose and suffocated her. Markings on her face were evidence of the pressure being applied by a bare hand. And she had blood coming from her nose, which indicated a great deal of pressure was applied to her face. To some degree, just like Susan Smith, like Diane Downs, like Casey Anthony, Stacy Barker wanted her own life back. She wanted her freedom. She wanted her parents off her back. And she wanted to be with a man who didn't want to be in a relationship with her because she had a child. And to get that, she took it upon herself to murder her 18-month-old baby girl in order to have those things. It's despicable. I did talk at length about some issues going on in Susan Smith's and Casey Anthony's background and upbringing that may have been contributing factors in what they would eventually go on to do. And technically, Casey Anthony hasn't been convicted of any crime related to her daughter's death, and she never will be. Though I do strongly believe that she knows what happened, and I believe she had a hand in Kaylee's death, but I'm not 100% convinced that she murdered her. Neglected her? Yeah, I believe that. Neglected her to the point that she caused Kaylee's death? Yeah, I believe that too. But I'm not sure it was something that she planned or intended. I had floated the theory sometime last year on another podcast that I discussed her case on that I thought maybe on a hot Florida summer day that maybe Casey Anthony, whatever she was doing, with no other childcare options available, left Kaylee in the car and she died a hot car death. I think maybe Casey panicked, perhaps had Kaylee in the car for a period of time until she figured out what she was going to do, then went back home when she knew no one was going to be there and wrapped Kaylee in the blanket from the home and the trash bag, all that stuff. And I theorized that perhaps when Kaylee died, she vomited so Casey put duct tape over her mouth in order to prevent that from happening anymore. This theory might also work if there was some truth in the drowning story as well. A neglectful Casey Anthony allowed Kaylee to slip into the pool and drown and panic and cover up ensued. I have argued about this with my mother-in-law incessantly because she is convinced, no doubt, that Casey murdered Kaylee deliberately and intentionally and did so by suffocating her to death with duct tape. As much as I dislike Casey Anthony, and don't get me wrong, I absolutely do not like this woman. I'm not convinced that it was a premeditated murder. Is she a piece of garbage for partying for 31 days after her kid died? Hell yeah, she is. But... A cold-blooded baby killer? I'm not so sure. But Stacy Barker, oh yeah, she is a cold-blooded baby killer. There is no doubt about that. She did that. And then she tried to cover it up. She is said to have spent the next five hours at least driving around with Emma in her car seat because rigor had set in. And when she was found, she was in the shape of her baby seat. Her autopsy did reveal above normal levels of Benadryl in her system, 
and because it has mild sedatives in it, it is likely that Emma was sleepy or asleep when the suffocation began. And the medical examiner did point out that the blood present in Emma's nose was consistent with being suffocated by facial constriction, either by squeezing the nose or exerting pressure on the lower face. The struggle to breathe resulting from this would rupture small capillaries in the nasal membrane resulting in this bleeding. Choking on a plastic bag would not have caused this to happen. But Barker was not arrested right away. She went home from the station after she did her interviews and did the same explaining to her family. She said she was going to Emma's dad's to borrow money, but they knew that he didn't have any money and they knew that Barker was about to receive her tax return, which is going to be about $5,000. Barker told her brother that Emma became fussy on the drive and she gave her a granola bar and her purse to play with. And when she turned around, she saw that Emma was dead. She told her grandma that she was playing peekaboo with Emma's blanket and a baggie somehow got into Emma's mouth when the baggie got caught on the back of the car seat and Emma accidentally suffocated. She admitted that she made up the whole abduction story and that she hit herself in the head on the steering wheel, scratched up her own body, and threw her clothing away. Her mother asked her if she tried to save Emma and she said no. And she seemingly had no regrets about it. At no point in recounting what happened to Emma did Barker cry. She did cry, however, when her mom also called BS and accused her of killing Emma. So even her mother knew, and she was not the least bit in denial about that. At the funeral, Barker's mother said she refused to sit next to her daughter. She told detectives that she believed her daughter killed her granddaughter and she began to feel very nervous and unsafe around her. She began locking her bedroom door until her daughter moved out a couple of weeks after Emma died. After the funeral services, family and friends gathered at the Barker home. Stacy Barker was seen socializing with friends, playing beer pong, and becoming very intoxicated and giggled excessively throughout the somber gathering. Giggling and playing beer pong after her daughter's funeral dreamers. Does this sound like a certain bubblegum popping, silly string shooting Texas mom of two who we are oh so familiar with? Yeah. At the end of April, Emma's grandmother frantically called the sheriff's department and asked them, begged them to take her daughter into custody because she got information that she was planning on going to Texas with Brendan. Her son had overheard the conversation and told his mom about it. She was taken into custody and subsequently charged with Emma's murder. I went over much of the case already, so I'm not going to get too much into the trial itself, which took place in 2012. Barker did take the stand in her own defense. One of the main points she denied, that it was she who was threatening to end the relationship with Brandon, not him, because he was not interested in being a part of Emma's life. She said that he told her that he would see what he could do, but that simply wasn't enough, so she gave him the ultimatum. If he couldn't put any effort into a relationship with her and Emma, she was prepared to end it. 
She did say that after the lunch with Brendan the day of the 18th that she went home and argued with her mother, but she denied that she ever screamed at her. She then told her brother that she was going to go to the park, packed up a few things to take along with her, and left. At some point, she claimed that she had changed her mind and decided to go see Emma's dad instead to ask him to help her move out of her parents' house before they had the chance to kick her out. She said that she did not want to go home and said that she had nowhere else to go. And obviously with Emma, she couldn't go to Brandon's and she testified that he wasn't her boyfriend at the time either. However, she never called Emma's dad, nor did she call Emma's paternal grandmother to tell them that she was coming over. She claimed that she didn't call because they never answer and that she was just going to figure it out when she got to Long Beach. In her testimony, she denied killing Emma, claiming that she did not think anything was wrong with her when she gave her her purse to play with. Emma had played with it before, and Emma liked playing with the zipper on the Ziploc baggie. When she grew bored with the purse, Barker claimed that she grabbed her blanket to play peekaboo for about 20 minutes and explained that she tossed the blanket because from the position in which she was driving, she could not reach Emma's face. She denied holding the blanket over Emma's face. She denied placing her hand over her nose and her mouth to suffocate her. She also denied giving her Benadryl. After a while, she testified, she looked back and saw that the blanket was still over Emma's face. And when she pulled it off, she saw that her lips were purple and her face was blue. However, she did not stop to call 911 or pull over because she said she was in the middle of traffic and she couldn't get over. She said she was scared and she wasn't sure what to do. She said she continued driving until she reached Cherry Avenue in Long Beach. And that's when she got into the backseat with Emma and found the bag in her mouth. She did not remove Emma from the car seat. She did not attempt to resuscitate her. She did not try to verify if she was dead or not. She said she felt her face, removed the baggie, sat there for a while, then drove home. Barker threw the baggie out the window, but denied that she intended to eliminate evidence, claiming that she discarded it because she blamed herself for having given Emma the baggie and causing her death. She continued to drive for 30 or 40 minutes, and when she looked at Emma periodically in the rearview mirror, she could tell that Emma was dead. She claimed she left Emma's body in Silmar and made up the kidnapping story because she was afraid that she would get in trouble for being irresponsible. She denied that anyone helped her and claimed that Brendan took no part in Emma's death or her attempt to cover it up. The next day on March 19th, after taking deputies to Emma's body, Barker returned to the Palmdale Sheriff's Station around 1 p.m., but was not interviewed again until 9.20 p.m. She remained at the Sheriff's Station until 2 a.m. the next day, and although she was able to sleep on and off during that time, she was tired and wanted to go home, and she claims that it was fatigue that caused her to give conflicting statements. She claimed that after several hours of questions, she would have said anything that they wanted her to say. On May 25, 2012, Barker was convicted of murdering Emma. In October, she was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. Today, she is 33 years old. She is residing at the California Institution for Women in Corona, California. She will be eligible for parole in March of 2031. I could not find any background information about Stacy Barker, similar to what was eventually learned of Susan Smith and Casey Anthony. 
but I was interested in the psychology behind some of these cases. I read an article called The Legacy of Distorted Love by Carol McBride, Ph.D. She writes that there is something enticing and luring as we watch these stories unfold about mothers accused of murdering their young children. There is a lot of trying to understand why. A child is dead, in some cases more than one. We have a need and a desire for a deeper understanding. Why do people harm their children? And is there something that can be learned from this? Is this something that we can work towards preventing in the future when it comes to dysfunction in families in order to develop healthier and effective child rearing? We are going to step back for a moment, dreamers, and of course I'm not going to try to diagnose anyone. I'm not even qualified. And the point here isn't to place blame on anyone, but to rather look at some of the issues in the family of some of the cases that we covered in order to just understand. The article mainly focuses on the Anthony family, but I'm sure there is a bit of overlap. We do know for certain more than we know about some of the others is in her family, Anthony's parents had particularly serious issues going on in their lives. And it is by no means an attempt to dismiss or excuse away any of her actions or the actions of any of the mothers that we talked about in this episode. When it comes to Kaylee's death, I said earlier, we are never going to know the whole truth as to what happened. But what the defense in her case told us is that there were a couple of serious issues going on within the family, narcissism and sexual abuse. And these are also considered some issues going on with Susan Smith. I'm not sure if she was necessarily narcissistic. It's possible. I don't know. What do you guys think? Diane Downs seemed to be as well. And as far as Susan Barker is concerned, I don't know what the family was like. I didn't find any information that discussed any issues in her upbringing or with her family, but there may very well have been. It's hard to imagine that she would just one day wake up and decide to kill her baby because of one argument with her mother. They seem to have a history of friction and a strained relationship, but I do not know to what extent. Or even if it was as difficult as Casey and Cindy Anthony. When it comes to narcissism and sexual abuse, the both of these things going on in a family, there's not really a great deal of information or studies out there about it. Casey Anthony's defense team claimed that Kaylee drowned in the backyard pool and the cover-up of her death was orchestrated to cover up family secrets. One of those being that from the time Casey was eight years old, her dad was sexually abusing her and there was at least an attempt on the part of her brother, Lee Anthony, to sexually abuse her as well. That was followed up with a sequence of lies, basically coming from everyone including Cindy, who nearly caught herself a perjury charge when she testified that she was home doing internet searches on chlorophyll and was directed to websites on chloroform, but records indicated that she was at work at the time, if I remember correctly. She is quite lucky that she wasn't prosecuted for that, and I'm sure they felt like she'd been through enough. So when all this stuff started coming out about the Anthony family, people on the outside looking in had so many questions shaking their heads at this entire brood. This child died, and all this other stuff began swirling around the family, 
It was a very bizarre thing to see unfold. And all four of these moms I discussed in this episode lied. They lied a lot. And they lied big. It is not clear with each of them what things were like within the family, either the families that they were raised in or the families that they would start on their own. However, emotional issues more likely than not carried over into their own families once they reached adulthood. The dynamics that may have been common in all of their backgrounds included lying, keeping secrets, jealousy, strained family relationships, fear, denial, lack of empathy, and trauma. Casey Anthony's defense attorney, Jose Baez, would stun everyone when he dropped the allegations of sexual abuse during his opening statements. He alleged that his client had been abused by her father for years. And her father, George Anthony, would get on the stand and deny it. And that was that. I don't think any more was ever spoken about it again. We also know that Susan Smith had sexual abuse in her background at the hands of her stepfather, Bev Russell, which was confirmed with reports to social services. And when Smith was made to face her sentencing hearing, facing the possibility of death, Bev Russell took the stand in open court to bear the responsibility for his actions, openly admitting that he is partly to blame for the deaths of Michael and Alexander because he was indeed guilty of sexually abusing his stepdaughter, even admitting he had engaged in sexual relations with Smith as little as two months prior to the murders. Diane Downs also made the accusations, and as for Susan Barker, I have not read that there were any reports of sexual abuse in her history, but that's not to say it didn't happen, we just don't know about it. And because she maintains that Emma's death was accidental, it would not do her case any good to use sexual abuse as a mitigating factor in her case. She would have to admit to killing and the history of sexual abuse having been part of what led up to her committing that act. So with the sexual abuse and the narcissism that runs in these families, telling lies and the ability to lie well is a prerequisite. Within the dynamics of the narcissistic family, lies are told to maintain the image of the perfect family. The Anthonys certainly attempted to do this, as did Smith's mother and stepfather. So much so that twice when Smith reached out for help because she was being abused by Bev, twice her mother shut it down for the sakes of their reputation in the community. And in a family where there is sexual abuse, lies are told, of course, to keep the abuse secret. And in these types of families, keeping secrets is very normal. And this too is in the same vein as wanting to protect the family and to keep up the facade that things are perfectly fine, when in reality, things are actually quite dark for these women to varying degrees. Jealousy is another factor in these family dynamics, especially, it seems, in several, if not all of these cases. Maternal jealousy. It's funny because I know I've recently opened up about my own mom in the Facebook group. And I have pondered that in the past. I wondered if her issues with me was somehow rooted in jealousy. But it just really didn't make any sense because when I thought about it, as a mom... Jealousy simply isn't an emotion that I've experienced, ever. If I'm not annoyed with my kid, I'm typically consumed with happiness, contentment, and pride. 
It seems jealousy in the mother-daughter relationship is not uncommon, though. Narcissistic mothers tend to be alarmingly jealous of their daughters for a plethora of reasons. Looks, careers, youthfulness, even the relationship daughters have with their fathers. And if there is sexual abuse taking place and it's being committed by the father, this could quite possibly lead to a very dysfunctional level of jealousy in the mother-daughter relationship. When narcissism is an issue in a family, every relationship is strained. Every relationship experiences friction on some level. And there aren't really any close emotional connections. There is a lack of empathy for one another. And a parent who is narcissistic tends to be the center of attention. Siblings are often pitted against one another. And the whole family must revolve around the narcissist of the family. If there is sexual abuse going on, as in the case with Susan Smith, and if the victim is the daughter and the abuser is the father, this can lead to a strained relationship between mother and daughter, in addition to the strain between the abuser and the victim. And if there are siblings who aren't being abused, more issues are raised when the victim is openly receiving more special treatment from the abuser. With all of these secrets, the detachment, the lack of emotional bonds, and the overall dysfunctional patterns and communications from both of these types of families, this compounds the stress and the trauma and the confusion within. In narcissistic families, everyone is afraid to own their truth. And if someone attempts to acknowledge the facade that's going on, they become the fall person in the family and all the blame gets projected onto them. They are punished, often alienated from everyone else, and made to feel like they are the ones with the problem. When children of narcissistic parents become adults, they often regard their childhood as one filled with fear, the inability to have a voice, and were in constant desperation for love, acceptance, and approval. Dreamers, anyone else feeling all kinds of relatability right now? It might just be me, but damn, this is hitting home. Anyway, and in the family where there is sexual abuse, fear is a motivator and a means used by the offender to maintain control over the family secrets. In both narcissistic families and families experiencing sexual abuse, denial is the way to cope, the way to keep the balance in the family. The children must stay in a perpetual state of denial in order to survive these dysfunctional situations. Children are completely dependent upon their parents, and if they push aside the denial and shine a light on the truth, they may lose the only people who take care of them. They may fear that abandonment. Children have an intrinsic need to feel their parents are right, that they are the ones who are the strength of the family. Children defer to them for everything, and this makes them feel safe. They don't want to lose that, and admitting to truth threatens their sense of security especially if they strongly believe that there is no one else to depend on in their lives, which oftentimes there isn't. And an earmark of a deeply narcissistic family is a lack of empathy. Parents who are narcissistic just are incapable of getting in touch with the emotional needs of their children. And I have this feeling that these mothers that we've discussed today, all of them were incapable of this. If they were, their children would be here. All of them put themselves before their children every 
single one. Not every mother who kills falls into this category. I would point to Andrea Yates as an example. And when it comes to sexual abuse, it is abundantly clear that the person who is doing the abusing absolutely has no empathy for the damage their actions are having on their children. Sex offenders are considered to be the most malicious types of narcissists. Many children who come from these families complicated by narcissism and sexual abuse develop post-traumatic stress disorder. They both cause children severe trauma and this can lead to bouts with depression, anxiety, sleep disorders, hypervigilance, lack of trust, self-esteem issues, relationship problems, sexual promiscuity or the opposite, the lack of desire, eating disorders, disassociation, addictions, among other complicated issues. Left untreated, emotions that manifest are often anger, rage, and confusion. So all of this being said, if in any of these cases, either Susan Smith, Diane Downs, Casey Anthony, or Susan Barker, if any of them had these issues in their family backgrounds, it could possibly explain why these women would do what they did or at least in Casey Anthony's situation, behave the way that she did in those 31 days. Not every woman who has these types of dysfunctional families goes off and commits these kinds of atrocious crimes. But I kind of wonder if most of them that do, did. So if we're going to continue to raise children, live in families, have loving relationships, have extended family understanding, Maybe we can learn from high-profile cases. Taking apart certain scenarios and issues raised can give us an opportunity to gain this knowledge. Maybe it could make a difference in preventing child abuse in the future. There's an epidemic of people harming children in this country, and there needs to be more education, understanding, and accountability. Out of curiosity, I asked in the group a question earlier this week. What do you think is worse, a mother who murders her children or a father who murders his children, or are they equally despicable? As I pointed out in some of the cases I discussed today, there are some mitigating factors to be taken into consideration, and some of you have pointed that out when your answers. We have a lot of feelings about these moms who killed their children, but there are things going on in the background and in their backstory that have you wondering how much did these factors play into what would ultimately happen? Never would we justify the killing of our own children, but these things are there nonetheless. And I do want to discuss those answers that you gave in the discussion group, but I am way out of time at this point. So with that, I will go ahead and close this out for now. But after this episode comes out, I will post a discussion thread in the group and we will gather up all your thoughts about these stories and I will record an addendum episode with your comments and feedback from the thread and the previous one. I am just out of time right now. And so that will bring this 73rd episode of California Dreaming to a close. If you aren't a member of the official Facebook discussion group, please feel free to request to join and come discuss this case as well as all the other cases we've covered thus far other true crime news, or whatever my dreamers slash cat people want or need to discuss. We are here for you. You may also follow us on Twitter at CaliforniaPod 
and on Instagram at California Dreaming Pod. And if you have any questions, comments, anything of the sort, or you just want to talk, you can email me at CaliforniaPod at gmail.com or feel free to message me on any of the social media platforms. The holidays are creeping up on me and I'm going to be traveling to visit family in Nevada next weekend. And it's actually my husband's family, not mine. But truth be told, dreamers, I think I mentioned in the group that he and I had kind of a rough patch over the summer. And if I didn't, well, we kind of had a rough patch over the summer. And part of that involved my resistance to take part in his family gatherings. So I've been making more of an effort to do so, which is why I've been in Nevada so much lately. That's where they're from. Trying to compromise a little bit, you know. Anyway, so I don't think I will have an episode up for my dreamers the week of the 24th or the 31st. It's possible. I thought about taking two weeks off and I do need to work on Patreon. So there's that. We'll see. I like creating content for you guys, so I'll play it by ear, okay? California Dreaming is proudly brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We are a podcast production company located in Los Angeles, California, with the mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to, to consistently improve upon our current roster of shows, to develop new content that appeals to people all over the world, and to provide a thriving community for listeners and podcasters alike. I, for one, am so proud to be a part of this amazing group of shows and hosts. So please go visit us at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. You can find the links to every show on our roster, all of the merchandise in our store, our blog, and if you just want to email us and let us know what you think, that's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. I also like to thank Justin Rimmel from the Mysterious Circumstances podcast and the Rev 96 podcast for providing the voice for the reading of Tom Finley's breakup letter to Susan Smith. He did such a wonderful recitation of it, and I'm so lucky that he was able to do it on such short notice. You know, I usually read everything myself, but this wasn't that long, and I thought it would come across better if it was read in not my voice and he was willing to do it. So it all worked out. Thank you so much for helping me, Justin until next time. Sweet dreams. Hey guys, my name is Roxanne Randall and I'm Dana D'Angelo and we're doing this podcast on the life and the tragic death of Lincoln Lewis. In 2016, my 18-month-old son Lincoln was murdered at the hands of someone I trusted. Burt Franklin was charged with first-degree murder and the death of his girlfriend's son Lincoln Lewis. This dentist was seen assaulting the toddler on the home surveillance camera. He thought he was smart enough to delete the camera clips, but through encrypted extraction, all of the videos were recovered. Later, he tried to hire a hitman to silence the child's mother before his trial began. This is the retelling of a story and the in-depth look at Lincoln's life and tragic death. You can find us at Life After Link. Link is with a C. Podbean.com or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.
The Evidence Locker is a weekly podcast about international true crime. Made by hardcore true crime fans, it's somewhat grungy. Join us as we explore the dark corners of the globe. We've covered cases from Sweden, Brazil, Australia, and the U.S., to mention a few. Find us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Podcasts.